You're listening to Tech vs. Media with Richard Walpert. On today's episode of Tech vs. Media, our guest is Rob Glazer, literally the founder of streaming audio and video on the internet, which means had he not done it, you'd not be listening to me right now. Also was an early Microsoft employee, spending a lot of time right now on artificial intelligence. All of that on today's episode of Tech vs. Media. The following program is brought to you in living color. We have a big show for you tonight. But there's one more little thing. Today, Apple is... You've got mail. You know that intro means it's time for another episode of Tech versus Media, Convergence or Clash. I'm Richard Wolpert. I've been in both sides for 35 years, president of Disney Online, original member of the Macintosh software team, four startups, investor in over 100 companies, and venture capitalist. We're very fortunate today to have a guest who literally, if it was not for him, everything we're talking about might not exist or might not exist by now, basically invented streaming audio and video in 1994 before we all had broadband or even knew what Broadband was. He's still the chairman, CEO, founder of Real Networks, which is now focused on AI. He was also one of the first employees at Microsoft active angel investor, philanthropist, co-owner of the Mariners, just a great guy and a good friend. Rob, I want to welcome you to the show. Richard, thanks for having me. Rob, we start with something called the Rapid Fire 10. Who's easier to work with, the music industry or the movie industry? Movie industry by a little. By a little. (laughs) Okay. I know the answer to this one. Baseball or basketball? Baseball. Seattle lost basketball when Howard Schultz sold to a guy from Oklahoma, and none of us have forgiven either of them since. Got it. Who is a bigger company five years from now, Netflix or Roku? Bigger company, Netflix, faster growing, maybe Roku. Which decade of your life was more fun, your 30s or your 50s? Those are two of my best decades. Okay. But I guess I'd have to say the 50s because I'm living it now. Got it. Which of these philanthropic initiatives that you're all involved in is closest to your heart, climate change, presidential politics, or Rwandan healthcare? Climate change because of my kids. What has more users in two to three years, Instagram or TikTok? Worldwide, still probably Instagram. Better university, Yale or Harvard? Hmm, the one I went to for four years and the one that I served on the junior varsity board of for 10 years, went for four years, 10, 10 years. I'd have to say the one I know, Yale. Okay fun one, just because I know you. From your perspective, who really won the 2004 presidential election, Bush or Gore? Uh, the 2000 election. 2000, sorry. Yes. Well, the Supreme Court voted five to four to put Bush in. Right. If the Supreme Court had not intervened and all the voted been counted, Gore would have probably, but not certainly won. Okay. Last question on Rapid Fire 10. Who do you think is or will become, because some of them are still alive, the better visionary between Steve Jobs Bill Gates and Elon Musk. Visionary Elon Musk. Business builder, probably Bill Gates, but Steve Jobs did an amazing job building his business and particularly the second time around. And Elon Musk is still out there, so he could catch them both. Cool. So you spent 10 years at Microsoft, 1983, 1993. Yep. So my question, you graduated from Yale in four years, I think, with two degrees, computer science and economics? Yeah, a bachelor's degree in computer science and a master's in economics, yep. In four years? Yeah. So you're a slouch. Didn't work very hard. I okay. got, got very lucky. <laughs> right, right. Just for everybody's perspective, 
How early were you at Microsoft? Roughly how many people were there in 1983? When I got there, there were about 250 people. The company had was growing fast. It had done about $50 million in revenue that year. So it was, I wasn't there in the startup phases, but you know, it was a, it was in the, you pretty much know everybody phase. I would say if it was 250 people, you were there early. Yeah. yeah. They were doing 250 people, about 50 million in revenue. You were there for 10 years. Yes. So you left, and as I understand the story, you already had the idea for wanting to do streaming audio and video. You started Real Networks in 1994, correct? Formally incorporated in February 94, yes. Originally called Progressive Networks, right? Yeah, absolutely. Partly because you were going to give a certain percentage to charity. Still do. Still do. Yeah. Important for people to know. My question for you, Rob, is in 1994, at best, people had 28.8K modems. Yes. They didn't have email yet. They weren't browsing the web yet. And you had this vision for streaming audio and video, which was going to require audio much less so, which is why I think you started there. And then video, massive bandwidth that didn't exist yet and wasn't even a year or two away. So how did you come up with that vision? Did you, how much time do you think it was going to take for the technological infrastructure, meaning 50 megabits bandwidth that we have today to come into place so that this audio and streaming that you were inventing at the time was going to be able to be used by tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of people? Well, I, I, there's sort of two ways to answer the question. One is kind of where the idea came from, and second is how I had the idea. So the idea came from a meeting I went to in Austin, Texas. It was organized by a guy who's still a good friend of mine, Mitch Kapor, yep. the founder of Lotus. Mitch was always a, a visionary guy. I mean, you could see around the, see the future better than maybe anybody I've ever known. Mitch had started something called the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which was issue, worried about issues like... Didn't he invent the spreadsheet before that? No, he didn't invent the spreadsheet. Bricklin Franks invented the spreadsheet, but he took the spreadsheet to the next level with what, Notice 123. Correct. Mitch started this group, Electronic Frontier Foundation, focused on issues of civil liberties and community in cyberspace. And I got to know Mitch a little bit through some of his work with Microsoft. And Mitch invited me to come down to Austin and maybe join the board. So I get to Austin and there's a bunch of these like crazy sort of iconoclast, some anarchists, some libertarian hippie types. And the guy who is most relevant to this story is one of the real fathers of the internet, a guy named Dave Farber, who's a professor at Carnegie Mellon University of Pennsylvania. Dave called around the room and said, you guys got to see this Mosaic thing. So I first saw the pre-beta of the Mosaic web browser in a conference room in Austin, Texas in late May, early June of 1993. And what I saw was what Mark Andreessen and his gang of band of brothers in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, who were all undergrads there, mm -hmm. had built, which was the first sort of commercial grade web browser. And then they had a web page called What's New with NCSA Mosaic. And Jeff Bezos has told similar stories, which is once you saw this thing, you were like, I've just seen the future. It was they, like, holy shit moment. This is like totally one of those life-changing moments where I've just seen the future. How do I participate in this future? How do I pick up a pickaxe, you know, go, go mine for gold, get involved in this thing? Jeff's idea was to sell things through it. My idea was, well, this, well, this is amazing what they're doing with still images. What if we do that for audio and video? And I had done, in my time at Microsoft, I'd done application software, relaunched Microsoft Word, got involved in computer networking at Microsoft, then did multimedia. So putting all those together made sense to me, which is, okay, let's do streaming, because I had seen audio work over local area networks. Right. And I'd studied the online world. I was involved with a failed product at Microsoft called Microsoft Access. But through that, I'd learned a lot about 
CompuServe, Prodigy, America Online, all these proprietary clouds. And it seemed to me as a logical matter that there would be ultimately a standard infrastructure for online, that it wasn't going to just be a bunch of proprietary mushroom clouds. So I saw Mosaic. I was like, okay, this is the fabric for the future. And I learned, I learned some about networking, but I learned about the way distributed hypermedia worked and the URL and those brilliant things that Tim Berners-Lee created. So it was like, okay, this is the foundation for the future. Let's do this with audio. And let's do with audio and video, but as you say, let's start with audio. And even then, let's start with voice audio so we can get it to work over the narrowest possible connections and put a footprint in place and then scale it. Then created a prototype for what became real audio. Then in the summer of 94, got it to the sort of Watson, come here, I need you phase mm -hmm. uh, where you could actually like demonstrate it and it would work. Showed it very selectively to a small number of people, including my friend Mitch Caper, because I figured Mitch was involved in giving me the inspiration to do this. I should show it to him. Mitch was an early angel investor. And Mitch was like, yeah, I want to invest in that. Let's, let's do it. Got the company launched, and it, it took off. We were in the right place at the right time, just when the internet was at the saddle point between going from being an academic, researchy thing to being a commercial thing. Mm -hmm. And then we just focused and doubled down and tripled down, believing that that was going to be the future architecture of how all media was going to be consumed. And isn't it fair to say that your love of music and baseball had something to do with you wanting to do real audio? It was the first things we did that we're proud of is we, we live streamed in the summer of 95, the first baseball game live over the internet. It was a Mariner, Seattle Mariner versus New York Yankees baseball game. And that was super fun. And so there were a lot of firsts that we were able to do in part because we were passionate about things. And in some cases, because we knew people who were willing to give it a try, you know, back then it was kind of speculative. I remember going to national public radio, ABC news saying, Hey, would you, would you let us try this for a year or two? We'll give you free software. If you let us experiment with your content, we won't try to make any money from your content. We're just going to try it. And you know, there are enough people out there that were willing to try. We were found friendly people in those places. Basically, we're able to get the ball rolling, you know, starting with the- Pun in, intended? It, yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. Baseball, particularly. Yes. Summer of 95. Yes. Got it. Discuss what it was like to deal with the music and entertainment companies in the mid to late 90s when you had this technology that you had the vision was going to be transformative to their existing businesses. Yes. And you wanted to partner with them and help them sort of make that transition into the digital age. And you went to all the music labels, you went to the studios. Tell us what the reaction was at the time. Well, I would say the music industry would took a bunch of meetings and was willing to like spend time learning about it. But at the end of the day, they considered this disruptive to their business. They considered it disruptive to the business of selling CDs. They considered it business disruptive to their business where they had a kind of an oligopoly cartel over distribution. Like if you were an artist at the time and you wanted to get your songs distributed, at the time there were six, then five major labels. You pretty much had to go through one of those major labels to get your music distributed. I was there with you yeah. helping with MusicNet. Yeah. Do you remember when we were trying to get those three deals done with the labels? Mm -hmm. And it was taking forever. Yep. And there was a hearing coming up where Dick Parsons, the CEO of AOL, uh, Time Warner, right was going to testify in front of Congress. Yep. And he desperately wanted to be able to say, not only do we want you to shut them down, I want to show you that we have an alternative that's legal and legit. Mm -hmm. And it was that forcing function, Don Parsons testifying, that allowed us to close those three deals literally the night before. 
They were also motivated by the fact that two of their rivals were doing something together, so they wanted to create a counterforce to that. So sort of the geopolitics lined up for us to create this MusicNet venture. And so we created MusicNet. The two other labels did their own thing with press play. But neither of these were very good consumer products for two reasons. One, in the best case, they only had 60% of the music. Two, they didn't even have that because the labels were very slow, one might even say sclerotic, and actually clearing the licenses to do all this stuff. So maybe, you know, of the top 100 tracks, you know, we would have 12 and Press Play would have nine or we'd have seven and they'd have 12 or it was like a Soviet store. It was a crappy experience. And for people's historical perspective, this is way before any MP3 player, right. way before the iPod. It was only available on your computer. Yeah. There was no way to take it with you. It was DRM'd, et cetera, et cetera, correct? Yes. So my thought about what happened was they weren't yet serious about digital music. But when we launched, I felt, because I was there, they weren't serious because they didn't give us the good music. The more charitable interpretation is that they were schizophrenic. But I think it resolves to the same thing, which is there were a few people in the companies who believed that this was their future. But the senior management at best wanted to put a toe in the water and, as you say, have it be a publicly visible toe so they could get their legislative policy agenda supported and they could they would not get, you know, sort of overly scrutinized for basically cartel-like behavior. So, yes, in that phase, they were not, in effect, serious about it. I think before that happened, I know before that happened, Real Networks decided MusicNet was not going to be a success. Right. How I remember this is the first company that got true licenses with true content from all five music labels was a startup. Called Rhapsody. Well, the company name was Listen.com. Yep. Product was called Rhapsody. Yep. And your vision was not individual tracks, but streaming service. That's right. That you ultimately could listen to any song you want, any song in the world, any time, no matter where you were. Exactly. So, yeah. So what happened was we, we owned a piece of MusicNet, but it was clear that was going nowhere fast. The Rhapsody guys had very cleverly positioned themselves as the Switzerland. So before MusicNet and press play labels would license to each other, Rhapsody became the first company to get all then five major labels licensed. So they had the first fully licensed product, still didn't have 100% clearance, but maybe at the time they launched, it was up to like 45 of the top 100. So it was getting better. A lot of indies. And so we thought, okay, that's, that's going to work. Let's get off this sinking barge called MusicNet. So we sold our stake in MusicNet and we bought Rhapsody. So we bought the first service early in its infancy. It had maybe 50,000, maybe 30,000. No, I think it was 10,000. Yeah, it was in the low 10,000s. Customers. So of paying subscribers. Yeah. But we thought, okay, let's ride this up. So that was the next move we made in that business. And then we got that thing to scale up into the millions, not tens of millions, the millions. And we still ran into a problem with the music industry because they were still very cannibalization concerned. So let's let's roll forward. Let's say between us and the reconfigured Napster, which was the number two player in that business, there were maybe a million and a half paid subscribers in the U.S. between the two of us. In Europe, soaking wet, there were maybe 100,000 subscribers because at that point, maybe we had 80 of the top 100 songs in the U.S. But in Europe, you know, in the France chart, you know, of the top 100 songs in France, probably 70% of them were French language. German, probably 70% of the German language, you know, on and on. So in order to build a service in Germany, you had to do licensing with individual countries, and the labels were a pain in the butt to deal with there. So along comes this very, very clever guy called Daniel Ek. And Daniel's based in Sweden, and he's he's built a peer-to-peer clone of the BitTorrent product called uTorrent that was smaller and faster than BitTorrent, sold it out. Which was similar technology to what Napster used. It was kind of similar. It was, it was more peer-to-peer, 
But Daniel, Daniel made a little money from doing that, and it was a tool. He didn't create any licensed services in it. And he thought, okay, I want to make a legitimate service. So he and his business partner, Martin, went to the labels and said, you don't really have much of a business in Europe. I want to do a different model in Europe. And the labels kept saying no to him. And he was like, well, okay, you know, what if I write you, uh, I know his initial check was a couple million bucks, and then he ultimately wrote like a $10 million check. So he got the right in Europe to offer a much better streaming product than anybody else was being able to allow to offer in the US or in Europe, where he was able to give you a free product with much, much better use and when the hope that he would sell you a premium product. So Spotify launched in Europe and it was pretty successful. And we basically said to labels, hey, we wanna launch in Europe, give us those same rights. And they're like, nah, we only wanna give it to that one guy. They gave it to Daniel, and he got enough traction that he raised some more capital at pretty high valuation. So at this point, maybe he's given the labels 10, 15, 20 million dollars for rights in Europe. Then he wants to launch in the US, and the labels have a bigger business in the US. So let's say Daniel's up to a couple hundred thousand paying subscribers in Europe at the time, maybe close to a million. But in the US, maybe, maybe now there's two million paying subscribers, and the labels didn't want to cannibalize that. So they said to Daniel, okay, if you want to get into the US, you got to pay us 100 million bucks to get those same rights, or pretty close to the same rights. They tweaked them a little bit. So Daniel raises 100 million bucks at a billion dollar valuation, and he gives the labels that $100 million, and he launched in the US, and that's how he got Spotify off the ground. We did the best we could, but ultimately, Spotify was the only free streaming service to really get to critical mass. So you had the idea to invent streaming audio and video. Yeah. You saw the path to what the future of music was before other people, yeah. which is it's going to be streaming everywhere, which today is obvious to everybody. Sure. You dealt with the music labels that were impossible to deal with until some point at which they realized CDs were dead, so they had to embrace this. How long did that transformation take in your mind for the music industry itself to be like resistant and then sort of helpful and then finally fully embracing? Well, I would say it's probably about a 20-year cycle if you look at the very beginning. We launched Real Audio in April of 1995. We started showing the product to the labels in 95. You know, we created the early sort of prototype services. MusicNet launched in about 2000. And then it really wasn't until the mid-2010s where you had ubiquitous, globally available services that offer compelling services to consumers. And now where you've got, you know, on a worldwide basis, whatever it is, 100 million subscribers, plus or minus. And when you look at that 20-year sort of transition that it took them, is there anything that could have been done to make them get there faster? Or is that just what it takes for people who are entrenched and have been doing something the same way for 20, 30, 40 years, and they're afraid of the change and they're afraid of the future? Is it inevitable that you should assume it's going to take 15, 20 years? Given the way government works, it is inevitable. You could imagine a scenario where there would be laws passed that would have created what's called statutory licensing. Because mm-hmm. there is statutory license. Like radio stations can play whatever they want. And there are certain rules they have to follow in terms of they can't play a whole album, generally speaking, without a license. But radio stations can play any song that's ever been recorded and not have to get a special license for it. That's the big part. So for people to know, radio stations can just do it. They don't need to even go get licenses. There's a statutory rate, which means there's a preset fee. Right. And they can just start playing whatever they want as long as they pay that fee. Right. So we've been talking a lot about music, so let's switch to video. And similarly to music with MusicNet and Rhapsody, Real launched a subscription service called Superpass. That's right. Which I think was probably the first sort of what was called OTT services, on-demand video services, with licenses from MLB, NHL, I think it was, the PGA. Yeah. 
Fox. Yep. And that was a twelve ninety nine. We had various various versions of it. Yes. And and what it turned out, any of these businesses, in hindsight, you can learn what the bootstrap was that worked. So the reason that Netflix became Netflix, and and I give them huge credit for it. They started with a business that relied on sort of the equivalent of statutory licensing, which is the it's called the first sale doctrine in the U.S. The first sale doctrine means that if I buy a, a DVD, I can rent it to people, and I can't be enjoined from renting it. It's not true in every market. Like, for instance, in, in certain markets like Japan, they have different rules around that. But in, in the U.S., there was a famous Supreme Court case that ruled that once you bought that case of VHS tape or a DVD case, you could rent it. As a result, the labels jacked up the prices of those tapes, and most new movies before video sell through gaming, they'd charge like 100 bucks for it. So they would try to recapture the revenue. But Netflix had such a good model of DVD by mail that they were able to use that first sale doctrine to build a very large business with DVD rental and the subscription product. With the red envelope. With the red envelope. That everybody remembers. The red envelope that everyone remembers. Reed Hastings, who's a brilliant guy, knew that digital was coming. And unlike a lot of these legacy media companies, he was super willing to cannibalize himself to get there. So he built a skunkworks project originally and then built it out and created two super successful companies along the way. He created the new Netflix and they also created what became Roku because he realized- Well, they didn't. They spun it out. Roku was a spin out of Netflix. But created by Anthony Wood. In partnership with Netflix originally and then Anthony became a completely independent company. My understanding, we both know Anthony. Yeah. He was an employee of Netflix for less than a year. Yeah. And he decided he wanted to do it on his own. Yep. And I believe Reed decided it would be better for them to not be tied to just one hardware player. Right. They let Anthony spin Roku out. Yes. And my understanding is they owned, as part of that, about 25% of Roku. Yes. And I recently read a story that they sold it at some point for about $10 million. And if they had kept it today, it would be like, $10 billion. Yeah. No, I, I, Reed Hastings did many, many things right. His investment holding strategy for Roku wasn't one of them, but he's been so successful with Netflix, it doesn't matter. Sure. Uh, but he had the idea that, hey, we have to get serious about digital, and he had the scale of existing Netflix. So for a while, the main subscription product that included digital was a bundle. I mean, the, the two most successful sort of de novo digital subscription service products, Netflix and Amazon Prime, both bootstrapped off of other business streams because it turns out that it's super capital intensive, especially when you get into the third phase. And I know you don't know this, but just because you know him a little bit, you watched everything. Do you think in the early days of Netflix, called the first year or two and it was DVD by mail, did Reed have the vision of what it is today, which was digital and competing head-to-head -head with every studio he was licensing from with original content? Yes. Or do you think he got there over time? I think Reed is a very, very forward-looking guy. Reed would be careful of what he said, and I know I'm reasonably well, we're not like best friends or anything, but I've known him for a long time. I think Reed understood the need for pivoting more than almost anybody from a traditional media industry because he thought like a startup guy. Even though he started with a physical goods business, he understood being a tech guy that it was ultimately all gonna go digital. And so he, more than any traditional media company, figured out how to get ahead of the curve and be there for the digital transformation and not get cannibalized himself. Got it. We're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with Rob about artificial intelligence and how it's being used specifically at real networks with the product and others for facial recognition, the potential good and bad of that. All of that when we come back from the break on tech versus media. 
I often say on my show, I'm having discussions with the people that you know and the people that you should know. The same can be true of a law firm. One law firm you should know about, an LA-based law firm, is Stubbs Alderton Markley's. I've known Scott Alderton for almost 20 years, and I've used his firm for not only my personal work, but for HelloTech and other companies that I've been involved with. They specialize in technology and media, the topics that we discuss in the show. If you're looking for a law firm that will pay attention to you at a reasonable price, please reach out to Stubbs Alderton. You can send Scott an email. It's salderton at stubbsalderton.com. And if you need help spelling that email address, just go to the show notes for today's episode. There'll be a direct link you can click on to email Scott. I highly recommend Stubbs Alderton Markley's. Bullhorn brings to podcasting what color brought to television. It makes podcasting a rich, immersive experience. With Bullhorn, you don't just listen to shows, you interact with them. Bullhorn lets content creators share live videos, chat with the audience and take questions, post polls, take call-ins, share images, and more. If you want to experience what podcasting can be and should be, download the Bullhorn podcasting app today at bullhorn.fm. Stop listening. Start interacting. So you've had this view into the tech industry and the media industry for, I won't say how old you are, but more than 30 years. You're looking at what's happening right now with what I would call streaming service overload, right? There was this big idea in 2018, 19, that the big revelation was going to be cord cutting because I could cut my $150 cable bill and I would just subscribe to the three or four services I like, and it would be $40. And instead, what we see is eight or nine streaming services. My wife came to me recently and said, we're paying for Netflix, Hulu, Disney+, Plus, Amazon Prime, Apple+, Plus, et cetera. What do you think is the most exciting technology that's come out recently that's going to have an impact on the entertainment industry, distribution that they have, et cetera? And the big buzzwords we're hearing, you know, in venture capital and VR, AR, and AI how do those things play into what's going to happen in the next 10 years? Well, well the first thing I'll start with is something very practical, which is today, if you want to watch something, you have a huge amount of choice and also a massive amount of confusion. So I think one of the big trends over the next two or three years is what I'll call sort of meta aggregation, which is services that come out that help people find what they want when they want to watch it and that basically are more agnostic about whether it's on Netflix, whether it's on Disney+, Plus, whether it's on Amazon Prime, and are focused on the consumer, which is, what do I want to watch? There's all these different ways you can swizzle that, which is, what do I want to watch with my friends? What do I want to watch when I'm on the train? So I think there are big opportunities, and there are interesting insertion points in how to do it, but I think how you actually pull the pieces back together in a way that is a great consumer experience and it fits with the modern ecosystem, where in the next two or three years, they're gonna be a set of services and there will be one or two big winners that actually make it really easy for you to watch all of these streaming services and not have to like do five different searches or browse four different services. Like, hey, I wanna watch, watch a new Marvel movie. Which service is it on? Oh, I don't know. How do I find it? So that how do I find it problem has paradoxically gotten worse 
even while there's so much choice. So I think there's a couple of big winner opportunities. And these are natural opportunities for independence because, because of course, Netflix course isn't going to do it. They want you to stay on Netflix. I wanted to ask you about the, the music industry was changed by people like you and Spotify and Netflix for movies and Hulu. So today we have some of the top services are Netflix, tech company, not media company, sort of media company now too, Amazon Prime, tech company originally, now doing videos. So my question for you, I totally agree that the service is too disjointed today. People don't know what's where, there's no unified channel guide for streaming, et cetera. But the companies that were willing to reinvent the future that existed 20 years ago, aren't they gonna face that same problem and not be willing to do what should be done because Netflix has its domain, Hulu has its domain, which is owned by Disney, by the way. Amazon Prime has its. And while they should get together, or somebody should get together and put those together, aren't they going to be resistant to that and they're not going to do it themselves? Yeah, I think if you generally pattern match tech versus media in terms of who's more willing to reinvent themselves, cannibalize themselves, the answer is sort of tech with an asterisk. Because it's tech when it's still run by the same original founder who started from nothing and is used to doing massively disruptive things. Reed Hastings is still co-CEO, or recently was co-CEO, I don't know what his current title is, of Netflix. So Reed's still at the helm. Jeff Bezos was the CEO of, of Amazon. He's still executive chair. So when you have the iconoclastic founders running things, it tends to be more common, still rare, but more common for them to self-cannibalize and break the model then when you have the second, third, or fourth generation of leaders. So in that context, the really competent managers who are running them are really good at incremental improvement, optimization, you know, running large organizations at scale. But in terms of doing massively disruptive things, the guy who I'd give the most credit from traditional media of doing massively disruptive things was what Bob Iger did in Disney when he did the trifecta of the acquisition of Pixar, Marvel, and uh, Lucasfilm. Lucasfilm. And so he... He reinvented the company by going back to their roots, which is highly differentiated, highly branded content, and brought that in at a massive scale in anticipation of this new future, and that has positioned Disney super well. So that would be my thing if I'm looking at the future, which is who's going to do this. If it's run by a disruptor, they might fail, but they're probably more likely to try than if something's not run by a disruptor. Where I think value is going to be created in the next three or four years, tremendous opportunities for entrepreneurs and limited opportunities for the existing big players to get involved early in these this next set of disruptive changes because it's just not in their nature. Got it. And then you gave some credit to Bob Iger. I think the number two by money and subscribers is now Plus. Disney Plus. Yes. And Disney's also tried to do a mini version of the meta bumble that you described, right? Disney owns Disney, Marvel, Pixar, Lucasfilm, etc. They own Fox now as well. They're, I think, the ninety percent owner of Hulu. I don't think they own one hundred percent of they it. Control, yeah. But they basically control it. They did a bundle with Disney, ABC, and ESPN. I don't think that bundles work very well. Why? I don't think they marketed very well. I think I think it's a confusing bundle because it's sort of a halfway bundle. Halfway because they don't have enough? Well, because they don't have a news piece in it. They don't, I mean, it's, the Disney brand is very powerful and Disney Plus is a great product. The ESPN product is a very different product. It doesn't have that much streaming content in it. It's not, you know, it's, a, it's got a little bit of sports stuff in it, but it's a variant of a product that works really well on the cable dial where you can go from ESPN and dip in and watch the other channels. 
Got it. So the hottest thing in startups, and I see 50 pitch decks a week, you probably do too. Everything is AI. Yes. Even if it's like ice cream. In the deck I see, we're going to use AI to know what ice cream you like. Right. What are your thoughts about AI? Is it truly here? I mean, I studied computer science in the mid 80s, You around the same time. People were talking about AI then. Right. They've been talking about it now for 30, 40 years. Is it really here and how is it going to affect these industries? What are you doing with AI? I am a huge believer in this generation of AI. It's fundamentally different than what existed before. The evolution of AI from stuff that overpromised in the 70s, 80s, and probably 90s to something that's delivering tremendous value in certain areas now is well documented. And the, the basically the breakthrough that's happened is this machine learning element of AI is extremely powerful. And there's now enough computing power. There's enough understanding of how to use that computing power to, to create breakthroughs. So you can really train an AI to do natural language processing to do natural language generation so it can make speech, to do computer vision so it can recognize people, places, objects, situations. There are certain domains where it's incredibly powerful. It is getting overhyped because it always does get overhyped. I'm bullish on AI for particular use cases like computer vision. I think it's incredibly powerful. You can have something that really enhances security. You can have something that allows you to authenticate and cut down on bank fraud and cut down on bad actors doing bad things. You know, if you had AI deployed properly at airports, it would be very, very, very hard for terrorists to ever board a plane. Mm -hmm. Now, you want to be careful. You don't want this to be like Minority Report where you're arresting people for pre-crime. But you can definitely do things with AI and then actually use that as a flagging thing to then have human intelligence kick in and say, huh, is there something to be worried about here or not? So you have a product at Real Networks called Safer, yep. which I think partly came from your kids being in school. Yeah. And wanting to make sure that only the appropriate people were allowed into the school. Is that yeah, fair? So yeah. my kid's school that they were going to at the time, uh, they since graduated from it, was two blocks from the scene of a mass shooting. How long ago is this? We put, the, we put this in about three years ago. Okay. And the school is a very nice school that has a courtyard. After the shooting, the school put in a gate to the courtyard. In the morning when kids were coming to school, there was a person at the gate who recognized them. At the end of the day, there was a person who was there. In the middle of the day, like if you had to pick up your kid early to take the kid to a doctor's appointment or they didn't have a problem. So they had they put a video camera at the gate and they had Angie at the front desk see if she recognized you. Now Angie at the front desk knew a lot of people, but she didn't know everybody. And Angie would go to the, take the bathroom break and then somebody else would sit there and they wouldn't know them. So they didn't have a solution there. So we said, hey, we've got this safer solution. Let us put it in and have an opt-in database for people that don't want to wait in the middle of the day to opt in so they'll be recognized automatically and they'll be let in. And so they tested it and it worked brilliantly. And so they created a database, an opt-in database of about 250, 300 parents and guardians and nannies in a few cases. And like the UPS guy, when they came to the gate in the middle of the day, it would let them in and it would create an audit trail. And, you know, there was a human being making sure that it worked right for the first several times and it worked flawlessly. It, it never had a false positive. Like you never had somebody come and who shouldn't have come in. Was it completely AI or was it AI and a person still also looking as a backup? In the short term, we said, you pick how you want to do this. You only want to get an indicator that says that's right. That's what they did for the first few weeks. And then it worked 100% of the time where there were no false positives. So after that, they allowed it to operate with more autonomy, where it would automatically open the gate. 
if the person checked in. And if the person didn't, wasn't in there, maybe the family got a new nanny or maybe the UPS guy had a new alternate delivery guy that day, you could still get buzzed in as a backup. But they never, for automated entry, they never had to worry about it. So thinking broadly, not just about media, not about entertainment, not about what you're doing at real. What do you think is the most exciting, transformative technology that's going to happen over the next, call it 10 years? Well, I certainly think there are many candidates in AI because AI is a general discipline. So the way that AI and machine learning work is very powerful. A second category I'd think about is alternate input methods to devices. You know, if you look at what's happened in computers over the 30 years you and I have been active, we went from keyboards, which were good, you know, fine to keyboards with mice, to touch on a flat panel device. Touch on a flat panel device solves certain problems that mice don't solve, and mouse plus keyboards solve certain problems that just a keyboard didn't solve. But there's a whole range of things. You can think of it as sort of having XYZ flexibility, where instead of having it be a two-dimension touch, which is what really a mouse is or a touchpad is, you actually want to have be able to characterize three dimensions. You're starting to sound like Minority Report right now. Well, yeah. So I invested in a friend's company called Control Labs that did a brilliant job of this. They basically figured out how to assess individual neurons firing from your brain to your wrist and put a wristband on your wrist. And that technology where they can figure out the individual neurons and they can map that neuron onto which finger you're moving and how you're moving it is an example of what I'm talking about for a new kind of, let's call it a brain-machine interface that is more powerful than touch and doesn't require you to like wear a data glove and you know, in some huge disruptive, it'll just work by wearing a wrist like an Apple Watch. Whether it's that technology or something else like that, that's going to be part of the next wave. So human-computer interface not using the input devices we use today. Using new kinds of devices that recognize that we live in a three-dimensional world, yes. Which is minority port-ish. Yes. In terms of the way Tom Cruise was up there and he was moving screens with his hands and zooming in on stuff, right? Yeah, there, yes. There, there was an element of that user interface stuff. But that's a that's primitive relative. Like imagine if you could do telesurgery. Like you literally, you have the best surgeon in the world and he or she, with fine precision, can manipulate a remote device and doesn't have to be in the room. Imagine how many lives you could save if you could get the right surgeon with the right expertise to the right health situation without having to do with physical travel. I appreciate your what you think is coming and how it's going to change things. So looking out five years in your crystal ball, that's been pretty good for you. Which company is going to have the largest base of streaming media of any type five years from now? I think it's pretty obviously going to be Netflix for no other reason the fact that they are inherently global and most of their competitors are either nation-bound or nation-based. So if you're right, the biggest media company in the world in five years will be Netflix. Because Disney owns so much independent IP, you can't rule them out as having had a, a position that the aggregate of the value of their media plus their theme parks, plus their other businesses is being bigger. But in the U.S. context, other than Disney, now Comcast is a special case because they own a big distribution platform. So I don't know if you count those as the media or telecom. But other than those two, because the other assets they own, in terms of pure media, yeah, I think you'd have to say Netflix will be as big as anybody, if not bigger. Over the last 25, 30 years, you've been in it and in the future. Which do you think it is? Is it conversion or is it clash? Well, there used to be a phrase, I remember speaking when Microsoft would compete with the Novella computer company of coopetition. 
And I think that it, sometimes it's coopetition, sometimes it's clash. And I think that it's almost like a phase thing, right? In the beginning phases, when the media industry is resistant to change at all, it's clash. And then when you get into the later phases where there's economics that are obvious to people, it becomes more coopetition. And my last question, what advice would you give to somebody graduating today? Well, the generic answer to your question would be AI, but I'd actually give more of a meta answer, which is okay. pursue the thing you are passionate about. Because if you're passionate about something, you're going to think about it when you're not working. You're going to dream about it. You're going to like talk to your friends about it for fun. And you're going to be better at it than somebody else who's not as passionate about it. Have friends who are really smart and creative people. Pursue areas where everything hasn't been figured out first as, as well. So pick opportunities where you are more likely to get engaged. When I got involved in the Electronic Frontier Foundation, it was not because I was thinking about the future of the internet. It's because I knew that these were really smart, creative people who were working on issues that I cared about, but probably even more importantly, they were just smart, creative people who looked around corners and could see stuff and therefore helped me see stuff that I wouldn't see otherwise. So was I lucky that Dave Farber had the NCSA Mosaic browser alpha within that day? Yes, but it wasn't by luck that I went to Austin, Texas that day. Someone really smart said to me, hey, do you want to come join our little band of, of hippies? And I went there because I thought it'd be interesting and I thought I'd learn stuff. So I would encourage people to both pursue their passion and to try to find ways to get lucky. I want to thank Rob for being on today's show, not just being on, but flying in from Seattle to do it here in person. He is the founder of streaming audio and streaming video. My podcast is called Tech Versus Media. Everything that you use for streaming, your Spotify, your Netflix, none of that may have existed had Rob not invented this stuff. When we come back, my final thoughts. I know I use the saying a lot, if you're right, but you're too early, you're wrong. Certainly, I was somewhat responsible for that. I was at Real Networks working for Rob in 2003 when I saw that the future of all music was going to be a subscription streaming service. And we bought Rhapsody in 2003 for $36 million. And it was just too early. We were still on modems. There was no iPod. There were no MP3 devices. It was only music on your computer. And we did get up to about a million subscribers, but we struggled for five, six, seven years. And then Daniel Eck comes out with Spotify around 2011, and all of a sudden people are ready. And he's a venture-backed company, not a public company, so he doesn't have to worry about quarterly reportings at Spotify. He raises a billion or two dollars from big, big venture capitalists, and he's able to spend it to buy his way into the hearts of the music labels, which were desperate for something like streaming, finally, by 2011 and 12. And Spotify is the monster it is today. So I take personal responsibility. I apologize to you, Rob, for leading you into that acquisition too early. But certainly we were right about the future of not just music, but video in general being a streaming service. We're seeing that now with video, with your streaming overload, with your Netflix, with your Hulu, with your Disney Plus, with your Apple TV Plus, with your Peacock. But trying to get on the board, those are my final thoughts. One of my favorite sayings is, show me you love me, don't tell me you love me. And what I mean by that is words are easy, but action is hard. And if you wanna show true impact and intent, action is important. 
One of the firms I'm very proud to be associated with, a venture capital firm called A-Crew Capital, A-C-R-E-W Capital.com, was founded by five people, only one of which was a white male, which is extremely rare in the venture capital industry. They are extremely focused on backing female CEOs, people of color, transgender. They put their words into action. And if you're interested in working with a VC firm that's truly focused on diversity and shows it with their action, not just their words, I highly recommend A-Crew Capital. Again, that's A-C-R-E-W Capital.com. I'd like to thank my producer, AJ Mosley, always a tremendous help. Our audio engineer today, Ness Savadas-Smith, and my chief of staff, Lily Ramadi, who helps me put a lot of these questions together by doing research on these guests. Even though I know them, there's stuff about them I don't. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you join us again on Tech versus Media. From Kirkco Media, media for your mind.